talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Avengers Infinity War released in April 2018 when if you preferred you could have gone to see Ken Loach being awarded an honorary doctorate by Brussels Free University against the wishes of the Prime Minister, Martin Scorsese's happy as Lazarou or Jennifer Aniston arriving at International Wii Day instead. I'm Tim Worthington and here's what I had to say about Avengers Infinity War when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. A crossover movie on this kind of scale that never feels contrived and never lets up in the gags and the shocks is a massive achievement, and the impact of that ending if you weren't expecting it, plus, let her go, Grimace, relationship goal. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Avengers Infinity War is writer Martin Ruddock. Martin, where can people find you? I can be found usually on Twitter at Sugar Ray Buzzard, which I'm called on that for reasons. Very often in the pages of Shindig magazine, occasionally Dot Two magazine, and um, just generally talking rubbish on Twitter, really. So before we go any further, Martin, what happens in Avengers Infinity War? It's the big one. Well, it's the big one before the big one. It's the culmination of the Marvel Cinematic Universe up until that point. The whole saga with the Infinity Stones, with everything that feeds into it, all the characters you've been watching films up until that point. And if you were not a fully paid up Marvel head, you wouldn't necessarily think were connected. It's the film where it all goes wrong. It's got an enormous amount going on in it. Gags, scares, shocks, the ending. Well, we haven't done the beginning yet. It's a film that finally, where Marvel says, OK, if you haven't been paying attention, this isn't for you. But if you have been, this is a staggering bit of narrative. It's the coming together of the Marvel Universe against Thanos, who has finally, after being a shadowy presence for all of these films up until this point, just the odd appearance here and there. He's finally coming to get what's his, and he's going to basically rub out half of life in the universe. Well, Martin, how much did you know about the Infinity Stones before you saw this film? The Infinity Stones, a little bit. To be fair, Marvel and I, we kind of parted company when I was around about 15. I think I was a very, very avid reader up until that point. I knew my Captain Marvel and Thanos saga. I knew the Kree scroll. War. I knew Thanos 
obviously the Avengers, the Guardians of the Galaxy, a bit less so, but having kind of grown to love that through their own strand of the films. But we should really talk about, because we've mentioned nearly everyone is in it, but we should just briefly touch on the people who aren't in it. There are a couple yeah. of minor characters actually from the films who you do kind of find out by proxy what happened to them in the next film. There's also three mm. very major characters who are mentioned in this who don't show up in it, but obviously they were going to show up in the next one because they couldn't not do, basically. The other characters that don't appear, Cloak and Dagger and Runaways, which were on Hulu, they were sort of in production at the time this was in production so there's an excuse for them not turning up agents of shield by chance they were in the future while the events of this were taking place so there's a convenient get out clause there which at the time of recording is about to be addressed in the final season which is going to be interesting the inhumans i think they just wanted to forget about yeah and i think people do the, just don't know that's the bottom line there if you've heard the episode about inhumans you will know exactly yeah. why that is but the real tricky one is defenders the five netflix characters who apparently were in early drafts of this and were written out because various reasons, but they felt there were too many characters, it would take too long to introduce them, which I have an issue with, which I've expressed before, which is Mm. some characters in this will be new to some people watching this, and they do introduce them. They aren't in it. Apparently Kristen Ritter was quite vocal about that, but I've not been able to track down an actual quote, so I don't know what she said or why. What do you think about all those absences? I mean, when you've gone such trouble to kind of knit that universe together, it really sticks out like a sore thumb i mean they've been a major part of it in its own right and it is odd them not being involved when you think about how it pans out when you think how many characters you do see it's very strange but to have this universe affecting event where everybody is touched by it and then just kind of oh we just they're not part of this it seems you've gone to so much trouble to kind of make this such a world building experience where you've got so many characters i mean it's nuts, isn't it? You you watch these movies, you watch these TV shows, and every now and again it's like, fuck me, it's Claw, or it's somebody like that. They don't leave a lot out of it. It's, it's quite staggering at times, the amount of characters from comics that find their way into this. And then you go to the trouble of having this Netflix strand of it, where they're all part of the same universe, and you just don't include them at all. No, I can't get mad around it, to be honest. Look at this way, it's a two and a half hour long film. It's full of incident, a lot happens in it. Would it really have been that much longer to have even had cameos from those characters? Well, that's a question we'll never get an answer to, unfortunately, because it's not one that they've really properly addressed. But on what did go on in it, which is this way back to back with Avengers Endgame throughout 2017, they were apparently reshooting bits of this right up until, I think, March 2018. So they were tinkering with it until the last last minute and i think that really shows i think it is so tightly knitted i mean as mitch ben said when we talk about captain america civil war it's just the scale of the story but the way it interlocks is absolutely flawless i've rarely seen anything like this and it was made kind of in tandem with a couple of films that well one or two of them including captain marvel had not actually been made yet they'd not started filming but there's a couple like thor ragnarok and man of the wasp that were made around the same time where what happened in them inform this and vice versa and we start with a direct pickup from the cliffhanger of Thor Ragnarok 
which is the Asgardians fleeing Asgard, and Thanos arrives to get the Space Stone from them. It's really like a cold open, isn't it? Those first few minutes, you're kind of wondering where it's going. Thanos is not a villain I was ever really super impressed by in the comics. In this, as we find out, he's actually got a bit of substance to him. He actually is a zealot. He really thinks he's in the right. You really get sold the menace of this guy, you know, literally minutes into it, when firstly he just does away with Loki and absolutely beats seven bells out of the Hulk. And that informs the rest of the film as well, because for the rest of the film, the Hulk is too afraid to come out. This is how bad Thanos is. And considering he's just been sort of like mostly hanging around the sidelines in the films up until now, that's a major win, isn't it? You're kind of literally minutes into this and you're like, right. It's basically several minutes in and it's like, okay, we're fucked. Pretty much, yeah. And the way they use Loki in this is really interesting because it's impossible to keep up with whose side he appears to be on until you realise that, you know, when there's absolutely no options left, when everything is at stake, he is on the side of good. He is trying to trick Thanos, who has no respect for him at all. As we'll see, he has respect for some unlikely people. And Thanos just does away with him to Thor's absolute distraught anger. And Loki's closing words to Thor are, the sun will shine on us again. So he's not all bad. He is just 99.99999% bad. But yeah, (laughs) that's it. Thanos has got the space stone, and it's already, they're kind of lost from that point onwards. Yeah, from that opening scene onwards, it is, I mean, you're introduced to all sets of characters in turn, and it kind of starts to weave together that way. But from that minute onwards, there is this spiralling sense of it's all going wrong. And it all happens so quickly, doesn't it? Well, speaking of happening so quickly, the one thing they managed to do to outsmart him is Heimdall, almost with his dying breath, sends the Hulk to Earth, who crashes into the Sanctum Santorum in front of Doctor Strange and Wong, who were arguing about whether they can pay for a sandwich metaphysically. A gasp Thanos is coming, to which they reply, who? That little bit of bickering between Doctor Strange and Wong is beautiful. I think that's brilliant. You've got this very rapid-fire introduction of characters and this looming sense of threat. One of the great things about this film is it doesn't skimp on those character moments at all. You've got Tony and Pepper. You know, she basically wants him after Iron Man 3 to kind of take it easy and at the first opportunity he's back out there. It's got to be about 90 seconds flat between walking in the park and him suiting up. Pretty much and this is the one fun fight of the whole film because basically Thanos sends Ebony Moore and Cull Obsidian to basically get the time stone from Doctor Strange. You've got those two Doctor Strange and Iron Man already bickering. Apparently during post-production they cut the line no shit Sherlock trading on the fact that they've both played rebooted Sherlock Holmes's around the same time. You've got Banner can't turn into the Hulk. You've got Wong assisting as well. And suddenly Peter Parker turns up from a bus on a school trip, driven by Stan Lee, which is just <laughs> going nearby and the spider sense tingled. And it's quite a fun battle, even though Ebony Moore, I'm going to say this, I hate him. I absolutely hate that kind of evil heart null that he is. Space Norman Tebbit. Space Norman Tebbit, that's exactly it. But like, your powers are quaint. You must be popular with the children. It's so creepy. But it's yeah. a creepiness you love to see. You love to hate him. He's just horrible throughout both films. And I really like that. It is a great fun one with lots of zingers. I really, I think of all the combinations of characters in this, where you've got strange... Iron Man and Spider-Man. I think this kind of three men in a boat thing they've got going is brilliant. I mean, Stark and Strange just 
that's it's inspired putting those two together but with spider-man in as kind of like the annoying you know the, the annoying younger brother who just makes them feel incredibly old it starts off you kind of think oh they could have this wrapped up pretty quick and within minutes they're all on a spaceship hurtling light years away from earth and it's all looking absolutely broken again that's how fast this film moves. Well, it's also one possible reason why the Defenders ended up being taken out of it, because the only bit I can think of where they could be introduced is in a fight in New York, which is mm. this bit. And if you had all five of them, including the Punisher, those two would not only not be retrieving any Infinity Stone, they would not be beaming back up to the spaceship they'd be done for. It's the same yeah. as later on, had, say, Fitz and Simmons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. been helping to get the Mind Stone out of Vision, they would have had it out in seconds. You know, you have to sometimes maybe leave a bit of tension there. It's why I think it's quite significant. It didn't strike me until much later that they held back some very powerful characters that could have stopped the whole Infinity Saga in its tracks. We didn't get Captain Marvel, as we'll find out, until the last minute. There's been no sign of Wonder Man or Adam Warlock. It's been established that Star-Lord can hold Infinity Stones in his hand and live. Therefore, it's not unlike him to arrange a way to sneak up on Thanos and just say, I'll have that and take one. But they put him in a position where he can't. And until later in this film, we don't really see Scarlet Witch's full potential because it's more evident in Endgame that she could stop Thanos by herself. I think that's part of it. I think there is a kind of checks and balances thing to actually create menace by not introducing factors that could eradicate that menace. I think also one thing it does very cleverly is there's on more than one occasion there where somebody is very much in a position, the amount of times they could have killed Thanos in this film and just tied it up there and there. But Again, people's they make mistakes, don't they? Thor gets too steamed up and makes mistakes. They could have taken him if Star Lord hadn't lost his shit later on about Gamora. I think a major theme that recurs over and over again is these are very powerful individuals, all with their hearts in the right places, but they keep getting it wrong. There's armies of Wakandans. There's forging a super weapon. Literally, they chuck everything they can at him and they come within a whisker of getting it. But they keep kind of getting it wrong because, you know, they won't. The Vision, who's always wanting to sacrifice himself, the Vision's kind of, oh, these shelves are too high, Wanda, save yourself. It's, <laughs> it's anything. It's like, oh, there's an enormous pile of phone books piled up by the door, Wanda, save yourself. It's literally, the Vision does not need anything more than a lengthy cure Ikea to offer to sacrifice himself, does he? He's saying, I will sacrifice myself, take the stone out of me. And it's everyone's efforts to defend him that end up playing right into Thanos' hands. And in the end, when Wanda finally gives in to it, by then Thanos is so powerful, he just reverses it. Well, speaking of people who keep getting things wrong, we've already established in this scene that, as per Civil War, the Avengers are, quote, broken up like a band like the Beatles. Doctor Strange, Iron Man and Spider-Man are all taken up with Thanos' Black Order when they go back on the spaceship, which in itself is a really nail-biting scene because Peter starts running out of air, which is genuinely mm. quite gripping when that happens. But Wong and Banner are left behind, and Banner decides he's going to track down what's left of the Avengers. And then we immediately cut to more people who keep getting things wrong, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And that scene where they're just cruising away and Thor smacks into the windscreen is 
brilliant. The Guardians bit is just like a little mini Guardians movie short in its own right. Krill and Gamora with Drax being very still and being invisible. You couldn't have imagined anybody doing anything on this kind of scale even 10 years ago, could you? It's so big that literally you have to have these groups of characters going off and having their own kind of miniature movie each. The story is just too big for them to all be in the same place at once. Dread it. Run from it. The end is near. We're gonna need some help. How you been, Buck? Not bad. For the end of the world. He brought back! Infinity War. When you said we are going to open Wakanda to the rest of the world, this is not what I imagined. What did you imagine? The Olympics? Maybe even a Starbucks? Yeah, meeting Thor. Again, that's pretty brisk. That doesn't mess around, does it? That scene kind of almost made me kind of think, can they just sort of park the others for a bit and just, should we just let the Guardians do the rest of the film? Well, there's so many hit gags just in that scene alone. There's nowhere, it must be somewhere. No, nowhere, it's a place we've been there, it sucks. Thor saying they gave the reality stones of collective for safekeeping and Quill replies, if it's with him, it's not safe. Only an idiot would give it to him. Or a genius. Gamora basically perfing over Thor when he's out cold. Mantis assuming that Kevin Bacon is one of the Avengers. <laughs> but it's undercut by when Thor tells him that Thanos has already got the Power Stone. You know, the Guardians are there to be fun and games, even at the darkest moments. But when he tells them that to get it, he devastated Xandar. Just that brief look they all throw between each other just conveys a whole kind of okay this isn't funny anymore you know they're clearly thinking is nova prime okay what about roman day you know they're worried about their friends at the yeah. nova core hopefully we'll revisit them in guardians 3 but we don't find out what happened to them which is a bit grim so already even it's being underplayed you know the comedy bit of the movie with the fact that things are going to get very very dark indeed and basically they split up and they head to nowhere while thor rocket and Groot head to Nadavalir to get a new, quote, Thanos-killing weapon. And there's a really interesting scene where Rocket and Star-Lord bicker about it, and he says, I know you're only going to Nadavalir because you know that's where Thanos isn't. But my reading of that is, Rocket would not leave them to go to nowhere if he didn't have confidence that they could pull it off, which they nearly do, which we'll come back to. But that's it. It's not a cowardice thing. It's that he actually has utter faith in his teammates. I think of all of them, I mean, you've got some wonderfully drawn characters. It all knits together so well as an ensemble in ways that the new Star Wars films don't. I mean, the Guardians, I think there's so much more going on under the surface there because you've got all this unsaid stuff. The amount that's kind of like communicated in those two films between Quill and Gamora just through looks alone and just little occasionally unsaid bits with Rocket as well. There are some amazing squeaky teen I am groups in this as well. It all just is so much more than the sum of its parts. Again, it's just totally runaway, isn't it? Within minutes, literally, 
they've split up and they're all, they're off on two separate missions. And also Thor gets given to replace his eye, which is gouged out in Ragnarok. The bionic eye that Groot brings to Rocket by mistake in Guardians 2. Yes. That is the kind of genius level these films operate on, where you don't need to know that. But if you spot that, that is such a lovely thing to have noticed. And then we're straight on to, well, the bleakest scene yet, which is, as we've already alluded to, wonder and vision, and vision being very morose, like a depressed Crichton, really. That's the best (laughs) way to describe him. Who are suddenly confronted by Proxima Midnight and Corvus Glaive, who've been sent on a similar mission to get the Mind Stone from him. Like you say, he wants to sacrifice himself, he wants to be noble. You've got wonder, still not quite got the confidence to fully harness her powers. And they look like they're done for when suddenly a train rattles past and goes away to reveal Captain America. This faction of Avengers have basically been, they've gone dark for a couple of years, haven't they? They've been living in hotels. They all look a bit different. Black Widow's gone blonde. Steve's grown his hair out and has grown a big lustrous beard. I think it's a brilliant way of introducing them, but it always just makes me chuckle. So what, you literally just found them, did you? Just in kind of moments flat in the middle of this pitch battle. I mean, 10 minutes ago, they were stood outside a kebab shop and the vision's going, oh, the kebab shop's closed. Go on without me. It's one of those things that defies logic that they can just find each other anywhere in the world so quickly. But it is brilliant. When they show up to kind of take out the trash... There's a lot of big moments in this film, but this is, a, in a quiet way, is, is one of the best ones. That business about the finding vision is the one thing that just doesn't sit right with me about this film, mm. because it is established by Tony Stark. The vision has turned this transponder off and cannot be tracked. That in itself is a plot hole that is retroactively explained in the comic leading up to Avengers Endgame, where it's revealed that Maria Hill was monitoring vision for Tony. And had told him that the transponder had been turned off. Because if Vision had noticed Tony was monitoring him, he would have changed his programming. Yeah. All of that is a complete mess. But it doesn't matter because you get this fantastic battle scene. And it's coming from all angles as well. The aerial stuff with Falcon's great as well. At the end of Civil War, you've got that kind of that splitting off of the factions. And I couldn't help but think that in some ways that Cap ended up a little bit with the... I mean, he's got the Black Widow, but he's got a little bit of the B-team there, hasn't he? I mean, don't get me wrong, they're great, but he kind of has ended up with... He hasn't got the heavy hitters. They don't have the same kind of firepower, sort of. They don't have these godlike powers. I suppose what I'm saying is... There's a little bit of an underdog about Steve's Avengers, isn't there? There certainly isn't. It's referenced in the scene where... We're actually jumping ahead a couple of sequences here, but when they go to the Avengers HQ to bring Rhodey War Machine into the fold, and there's an appearance from Thunderbolt Ross, who has been rarely seen since he was rolling around drunk at the end of The Incredible Hulk. He still considers them war criminals, and Rhodey just shuts him down and gets... Yeah back on board with them but when ross tries to argue with them cap says earth just lost your best defender about tony stark he is aware of that himself he's absolutely acknowledging they're on the back foot and they need as many people as they can if the military won't help so be it at the same time you've got there is that there's that little bit of oh can they they can pull this off hope about it because literally okay their greatest defender is off in deep space but their greatest leader is on the ground and there's also a lovely bit of dialogue where Banner's confused about the fact there's an Ant-Man and a Spider-Man. 
<laughs> Although the only reference to Ant-Man in this is that Scott is still under house arrest, which he is in Ant-Man and the Wasp, but yeah. we're jumping a little bit ahead there. But back to nowhere, where the Guardians have gone to try and stop Thanos getting their reality stone. And this is where what you say about them being humans with their own emotions falls apart, because obviously Star-Lord is a genius tactician, and he's worked out a plan to get around Thanos, to confuse him, and basically kill him. The problem is... The two of the people that's enlisted for it are Thanos' embittered estranged daughter, Gamora, and Drax, whose family were murdered by Thanos, and they suddenly start ignoring the plan and race at him themselves. And that's when it falls apart. That's when they lose there. It was never going to work out well, was it? He is a genius tactician, but, you know, he's, he's never really thought anything out longer than his own nose. There's a certain amount of, okay, there's still a little bit of, okay, this will be fine. Obviously, he's terrified of losing Gamora. But, you know, taking Drax with you on a stealth mission, I mean, there was no way he wasn't just going to bolt for him at the first opportunity. It's what Thanos does to them with the Reality Stone, which I think is, yeah, it's quite chilling in its way. But, you know, turning Drax just becomes sort of slices of himself, doesn't he? Bantis goes all gooey. Oh, we don't find out what happened to the Collector who appears no. in a, a vision created by the Reality Stone and appears to be sentient as he disappears. But what happened to him? I like things like that that do keep you guessing in some ways. I mean, I think, in my mind, he was just raised to the ground with the rest of nowhere. But it, again, it just shows the power of him. I mean, when you see it as it really is, but devastated nowhere. Every minute along as you go through this film, you're getting a greater feeling of, it's not even like Thanos is particularly clever or anything, but he is just extremely powerful and growing more powerful by this, and single-minded as well. So you've got this godlike figure who is just almost casually trampling over them. But this is where we slightly discover that Thanos might be the biggest villain in the universe. But he has his own moral code. And while he basically wants to drag off his own daughter, because we never quite found out how she found out, but during her outlaw career, she's somehow come into possession of the knowledge of where the soul stone is. And he tricks her into getting close enough, thinking she's going to kill him to be able to get hold of her. Star-Lord appears, shouts, let her go, Grimace, which is the best joke in the entire <laughs> film. Threatens to blow that nutsack of a chin right off his face. Describes himself as a long-term titan-killing booty call. And Thanos is actually impressed that his daughter has picked this guy as a boyfriend. Yeah. And says warmly, I like him. That is quite a wrong-footing moment. You know, there isn't malevolence there. There's a weirdly calibrated moral compass of some description. Yeah. And that's intensified even more by something we'll talk about down the line. But that really, that whole scene is quite a key scene in the whole film. And in a way, the two of them, Star-Lord and Gamora, are at the absolute heart of the film. It's funny, it's not really talked about a lot, is it? Their relationship is so central to it. I mean, one thing that kind of gets me about Infinity War is it came out and people rightly raved about it. What I'm getting at is it was this enormous event and it stayed this enormous event until a year later when Endgame kind of sort of shuffled it out of the way in event status and people kind of stopped talking about it a bit, didn't they? I suppose when you've got two films which are basically part one and part two, 
people will always kind of in their heads kind of default a bit to part two. I think it does Infinity War a great disservice. And that's the point at which we're going to have to say that, well, I hope people feel as favourably about part two of this, because as you said, it's so big a film that we can't really do it justice in one single edition of this. So, Martin, we'll see you again soon for part two of Infinity War. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of it called Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.